Hey listeners, I'm Robbie and this is The Breakdown. This week, I'm bringing you my conversation with the Broadway director, Mark Bruni. Mark directed the Tony, Grammy, and Olivier Award-winning Beautiful, the Carol King musical on Broadway, in the West End, the US and UK tours, and in Australia, where he won the 2018 Heltman Award for Best Direction of a Musical. Other directing credits include Hey Look Me Over, Paint Your Wagon, Pipe Dream, and Fanny for City Center Encores, as well as work for Manhattan Theatre Club, Chicago Lyric Opera, Kennedy Center, The West Side Theatre, Royal George, The Writers Theatre, Golden Gate, The Long Wharf, Barrington Stage, Roundabout Underground, and eight shows for the St. Louis Muni. He won the Nymph Award for Best Direction for his production of Such Good Friends. I was so excited to get to chat and meet Mark. He's one of those directors you always hear about. He started his career as an associate director on several huge Broadway shows, working alongside some of the biggest Broadway legends of all time, like Jerry Zaks, Kathleen Marshall, and Walter Bobby, just to name a few. It was incredible to hear how it all started for him, how one thing led to another, which led to him directing one of the biggest and most popular Broadway musicals, like, ever. Speaking of, of course, I had to ask him about Beautiful, which I saw probably four times. Mark explains how they developed the musical and to him, what led to the musical's huge success. He takes it a step further and talks about all the women who auditioned for the lead role of Carol and who played the part over the years and what he was looking for in those auditions. And of course, we talk even more about the audition room. One thing that stood out to me is that he stresses the importance of wanting to see work that feels like it is happening for the first time right in front of him, rather than just a sequence of actor choices. And he said this might seem simple, but it's actually something that he doesn't get to see all the time. There's so much more to say, but Mark explains it so much better than I ever could. So without further ado, my conversation with the Broadway director, Mark Bruni. I am super happy to be talking to you. I wish we were doing this in person, but... Yeah, I know. So many things that we wish doing in person at this point. But yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be here and thanks for asking. Yeah, for sure. You are um, such a perfect person to have on the podcast and I'm happy that you are sitting down here with me. I usually like to start, you know, pre-pandemic. It was like, what are you working on now? What What is coming across your desk? But it's kind of a weird question to ask now because so much of it was halted in March. But then also so many of us, if we are working on something, it is usually not maybe the thing that we normally would be doing. But a lot of us are just kind of taking care of ourselves and, you know, kind of not doing anything. But but I just wonder maybe um, what were you up to in March when all of this came to a halt? And then maybe like what are some things that are kind of going on lately? I was in the middle of rehearsals on a new musical called Trevor that I've been working on it for about musicals take forever. So this I've been working on this now for, I think, six years. And we did a production three years ago at the Writers Theater in Chicago, which is a wonderful theater that's in Glencoe, just um, in one of the suburbs of Chicago. And uh, there's some producers that were attached to it from the beginning and who had enhanced the production in Glencoe and with the eventual attention of bringing it to New York at some point. And we finally got a theater and we got stage 42, which is the 500 seat off-Broadway theater on 42nd Street. And um, we were in the middle of rehearsals for that commercial off-Broadway mounting of Trevor. And uh, we were three weeks in and the load-in had started 
that previous, I think we, st we ended up stopping rehearsals on that Saturday, the Saturday, the last day of the before times. And uh, we had been to the theater that Wednesday because that was the first day of load in and they had lights going up and they had uh, some sound that was being uh, loaded into the theater as well. And uh, they were finished building the, sh the set in the shop and we were getting pictures from the shop and then everything stopped. Oh, um, so I was just after after so long of getting so close to the finish line uh, on a on a musical, um, then, uh, you know, and we and, and we had just gotten in rehearsals to the day where we had staged a first draft of everything in the show. We were just about at the moment where the next day, if we'd rehearsed on Sunday, we would have done a run through. But on, on Saturday, about halfway through the day, uh, it just became clear we were rehearsing at Pearl Studios and that whole week. Every day there were just fewer things rehearsing. We were we would come in every day and then there would be just like one fewer thing. So on the first day it was like open call for hairspray, everybody's there. It was it was just mad mass masses of lines of people. And then as the as the week went on, we got to Saturday and we're like, just us, just us. Okay. That's uh that there's there's something wrong with this. We we shouldn't be here. We we gotta go home. So we sort of called it yeah. in, that, in that afternoon, but um, there, there is certainly the hope and the plan to uh, continue with that project on the other side of this pandemic pause, whenever that might be. Um, although obviously, you know, we don't really know what that is. So since then, I've working on developing projects, which is you know something you do with writers and and continue to uh, work on trying to get some things together so that on the other side of this, there will be some things to mount. One big project that I worked on was uh, Jason Howland, who's the music supervisor on Beautiful and, uh, and a good friend called me about a month into the pandemic and said, I've got this idea and um, it's a little crazy, but um, I'm thinking of doing this musical as a web series. And would you, would you want to be involved in this? And he, he, he definitely lied about the extent of it because, uh, or, or didn't really know what it was going to be at the point because he said, you know, it's just like a 30 second song and maybe like a little bit of uh, dialogue and, um, and it'll just be a fun thing for people to do. We, we'll get, get some friends together and we'll, we'll do this thing. So it turned into this, uh, this series called A Killer Party, which was um, uh, a, a sort of murder mystery that um, over uh, nine episodes that ended up being about 10 minutes each. So it's about a, it's about a 90 minute show, which, which ended up being a, a, a new musical with two or three new songs per episode and all filmed remotely by actors in their houses. And, uh, and it was just this tremendously long and uh, involved undertaking that, um, that ended up being basically like shooting a movie in three, in, 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 uh, over the course of probably about like a month and a half, but they wrote it so fast too. I mean, Jason, along with Kate Kerrigan and Nathan Tyson and Rachel Axler, were the were the writers that kind of brainchild was was Jason's brainchild, and then he brought everybody else on on board, and and they just wrote it so fast. Uh, unlike the development process of most musicals, which goes over the course of many years and many workshops and many readings and blah blah blah, and we didn't do any of that. They just decided we're going to do it. It, it's, it was a real lesson in having a deadline and having a uh, a goal and uh, and also having everybody be free and available. So it was it was sort of early enough in the in the pandemic that everyone was sort of looking for something to do a and we had a an incredible array of actors say yes. And so that ended up being uh, a a good chunk of time. So uh, th that was that that was I, that's been my my most significant project I think in in this in this time. 
Uh, and I think there's there's a plan in place to try and um, maybe continue and do a second season of it at some point. It was it was it was a, and it was an incredible relief to just have something artistic to put put my mind on. It, it's I, it's so hard for everybody to to just kind of find the motivation to continue without the kind of carrot of like knowing when that will eventually be able to happen again. Yeah. So yeah, I, along along with finding you know lots of lots of new pandemic hobbies and uh, and and finding other other things to, I've never cooked and now I now I cook. That's that, that's that's a new thing. <laughs> I as I have done that as well. Pandemic hobbies and cooking and man, can I make a mean sourdough now? Just like oh, yeah. um, you know, most of <laughs> I, the the most I've gotten into baking is uh, getting into the Great British Baking Show, which seems like a kind of a cliche at this point because everybody watches it but I hadn't watched it and so for me it's now made me more terrified to start baking because of all of the specific tiny little details that uh that show how things can go so horribly wrong I've watched every episode of the Great British Baking Show and love it <laughs> yeah I, I'm only I'm only two seasons in now so I've, I've watched a couple of the new ones and now I I'm now I started with whatever I guess the seasons are not they're not labeled in the in the same numbering that they were in the yeah. British system or something. So yeah, so I just just got to the apparently the, the episode I watched recently is the big the big one that everyone talks about where the uh, it gets thrown in the bin. Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking. You drama, were say. drama. That's drama. Th theater, 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 theater and baking together. Yeah, didn't just start with waitress. Uh, right, right. That's funny. I know. I imagine there'll be like an immersive waitress somewhere, like the Sweeney Todd in the pie shop, right? Yes, yes. I, I know. Although, although anything immersive seems like even farther away than I know uh, than, than than any kind of uh, other kind of theater. Twenty twenty nine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know it's sad to think about. I want to back up a little bit because I want to. I'm always fascinated to hear how the stories of how some of the people in our successful people in our business got to where they are and what they're doing. I think a lot of us have similar stories of how we got into the theater and and why we are here. And it can, it feels like we can feel all a little bit more connected hearing hearing other people's stories. And so I guess I guess what that means is maybe briefly talk about how you found the theater and then your path to slowly become where, where you know where you are now today in quarantine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was I was definitely interested in the theater as a kid. I don't remember the first thing that I saw or what, but I remember wanting to be a performer for sure. And my sister and I put on Christmas shows for for our family, uh, which were really. Uh, mini tours because we would do them at my grandmother's house and then we would do them in the living room for some parents friends so it was like two performances we would we would have notes between so we would like you know make some changes see what went well see what got a laugh with the with the grandparents folk and then I, I was I was very much an a sort of actor singer dancer in in high school but I never really thought that that was going to be something that I could pursue as a career I, I grew up in a, a suburb of New Jersey and uh, that that wasn't really an option that was encouraged so much although my parents are extremely extremely behind um my uh, my choices but uh they uh, at the time you know there was there was a thought that yeah sure that's always something that you can do but you know what is going to be the thing that you you know make a living doing um and so uh so i had in my mind that i would go 
to a liberal arts, arts school and go to uh, law school and be a an entertainment lawyer. That was going to be the plan. I went to Dartmouth College in New Hampshire and I was was heading towards being an econ major and at the same time was always doing the same kind of performing and uh, that that I had done all the way through doing musicals and I was in an acapella group and doing uh, doing all of that kind of um, that, that kind of stuff. And then uh, about sophomore year of college, I got the opportunity to direct something and that felt like it kind of clicked even more at the time. It was really like, oh, great. I get to play all the parts. That's great. But um, but it was it was more about the, the the sense of collaboration and the sense of being able to look at a story and tell a story from multiple perspectives and to be able to take a macro view of all of them, all of the pieces. And and I think I, I think that the directing bug had been planted earlier. I remember there was a there was a great book that was um, written by Barbara Eisenberg called Making It Big that was about the musical Big had let a journalist sort of embed with the process from the very beginning of the inception of the idea all the way through to the um, ill-fated closing of Big. And, um, and she wrote this kind of fascinating I, I found it to be, I remember getting it as a Christmas present one year and and, and, re, and like pouring through it and just going like, wow, I love this process. This process is amazing. And just thinking that is absolutely what I want to do, but having no idea what the, you know, what the path was to that. So I, I, I ended up, I started directing musicals in college and because Dartmouth is a school that has a lot of nice resources, but not a huge number of people that are um, really, really passionate about theater. Um, the ones that are passionate about theater have a, a, you know, a good chance to have a good number of opportunities. So I was very, very lucky in that way. I mean, I've, I've been lucky. I've been extremely lucky and privileged throughout my life, but th at, at that time specifically. And, and so I, I, I directed a few, th a few things in college and then I was um, extremely fortunate because I did my senior thesis. I, I ended up being a double major with uh, drama and economics, uh, still thinking that it was going to be go to law school and uh, and be a lawyer. My senior year, I did I did director production of Assassins as my senior thesis in college, and it it just so happened that the the college gives a number of honorary degrees at graduation every year, and my year by coincidence. Jerry Zachs was one of the honorees uh, of this um, uh, this honorary degree. He was a he went to Dartmouth. He was a 19, class of sixty seven. So I had met him once because he'd been up to the campus my freshman year with this movie Marvin's Room that he had directed, and he did, did a screening. And I'd met him and appropriately gushed. Or and I, I remember asking him some really detailed question about one of the productions that he had um, directed. And he curiously remembered that he had met me in, w in my freshman year when I went to the wine and cheese meet the famous person my senior year. And so I, I went up to him and I said, you know, I have no idea what I'm going to do next year, but I would, you know, I would love to like get your coffee or anything. And he said, write me a letter. And I said, okay, well, that's the end of that. I don't know, fine. So I was, I, I, I wrote, I, I wrote him a letter, and he got in touch with me and said, can you, can you meet in New York? Uh, I was in Hanover, not really knowing what I was going to do, and I got this message saying, can, can, can you come Friday to New York to meet Jerry? I'm like, yeah, 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 I can. So I came to, I came to New York, and it was, it was just extremely fortuitous that at that moment. The associate that he had been working with for a number of years, B.T. McNichol, was supposed to be working with him on this new play that he was about to go into rehearsal with. And that 
play was called Epic Proportions, which was um, this play that, that Kristen Chenoweth was scheduled to be in right after she won the Tony for Charlie Brown. And I uh, and, and BT was only going to be able to be there part of the time because he had just gotten the job being the associate for Sam Mendes on the Cabaret Revival. So, so Jerry said, um, you know, would you be able to, I mean, well, I don't think he said, would you be able to, I, that's like, yes, yeah, of course I'd be able to. Um, uh, do you, <laughs> Whatever you say. Do, do you want, yeah, I mean, do you, do you want to, uh, do you want to be an intern and, 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 you know, basically take some notes on the, on the one day a week that BT is not going to be here. And would you, would you, you know, be a, a part of this process? And I was overwhelmed. I was, this is, this is a, an incredible, incredible opportunity. I said, absolutely. Yes. So that led to this internship um, with Jerry on Epic Proportions. And we sort of ended up hitting it off. And that led to um, it, it, sort of an on and off relationship where I, obviously everything is sort of by the project. And that year, he he did that, and then there was a long period where he didn't do anything, and then I, I, we worked a little bit, like a couple weeks, on this Broadway show called Swing that he was consulting on, and and it, and at that point it was it was very much just sort of getting to be in the room, which was an incredible eye opening opportunity to just mm -hmm. be a fly on the wall. And as the as the as time went on, and I was able to develop a a, a better relationship with Jerry, that turned into uh, working for him for eight years. It, it was not in any way a full-time job. It was very much a when, whenever he had something, sometimes it'd be like, come, come do this reading for a week. But he, you know, lucky, lucky enough for me, for me, he, he kept asking and I, I became kind of the, the person that was the go-to person for him and became his assistant director and then associate director on, on a number of projects. And then through those projects, I was able to meet a lot of other people that I ultimately um, worked with I, Kathleen Marshall was the choreographer on Little Shop of Horrors, and so I had worked with her in the, throughout the process of doing Little Shop. And then uh, when Wonderful Town happened, and it was her Broadway debut as a director, she she asked, "Hey, do you want to come work on this?" Because we had just worked, we we had just spent three months together every day in the room working on uh, on Little Shop. I love that. I mean, I love it for so many reasons. First of all. I love Little Shop. It's one of my favorite musicals. Hunter Foster did one of the earlier podcast episodes. He's wonderful. Oh, he's he's just great. Yeah. Yeah. I've worked with the Hunter a number of times and he's just terrific. And now and now a director himself and a and a wonderful artistic director mm -hmm. um, doing 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 an incredible job just um, bringing theater to uh, Syracuse. Syracuse. Yeah. And I saw that production of Little Shop the night before it closed on Broadway with Joey Fatone. Oh, wow. Oh, right. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, the, 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 that was a, that was a very different, uh, show by the end. <laughs> no, I fine. wish I'd, I wish I'd seen Hunter and, and obviously Carrie Butler, but I went back to my, I was a senior in high school that year and I went back and became the drama club president just because I got to a say in the musical that was done. And I said, we're doing little shop of horrors so I can play Seymour. And I did. Fantastic. Well, that I, that that show is one of the greats, and just the the writing of that show is so lean, and there's not a the, the, there's not an extra word throughout it. The stakes are so crystal clear; you know exactly what everybody wants, and it's uh, it, it's just it's a total masterpiece. Have you have you seen the Howard documentary? I was just gonna say to you, have you seen the Howard documentary? Yeah. Yes, oh. and it was heartbreaking, but beautiful and wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Howard's Howard's work is so exquisite. 
and um, what what a deep, deep tragedy and shame that the the world didn't get to see more of his work because that 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 genius is deep and it, it, it's so inspiring and um, and joyous in a way, mm-hmm. although it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it sounded like he was a very, he, he was very, very intense about his work, but, mm-hmm. but the, but the, the joy that comes through on the other side of it, um, of, of, of what is the, of the work itself is, um, is really inspiring. And, uh, and, and I've always, I've always admired his, um, his work a, a great deal. I, the, the, I, I've been, I've always been a fan of, um, another musical of his that, that has not really ever gotten a a revival I, for for a while it was it was on a encore's list but it has not happened yet but um uh smile mm-hmm. that's the disneyland has, song right yeah yeah that's the that's sort of the takeaway song that everybody knows but there's a couple of yeah. other songs in there that are, are extremely um it, it just really smart satire i'm not sure that i don't think the show necessarily works on the whole but i think that there's some satire about the um the the 80s culture that i think has an interesting parallel to um to where we are totally yeah absolutely and and you're right encores like they need to get on that speaking of encores i know you worked with walter bobby yes which you did as well yeah yes i was his assistant director on chicago for a little bit um when he kind of came back to it and and then we worked on the tour i guess like a year and a half ago or something together well speaking of joyous people he just has such a gleam in his eye and a and a love for the work and uh and yeah but yes i I, i'm great fan of of walters and he's a fan of yours he um obviously but we were in kansas city teching the chicago tour and i just remember like i was driving we were driving somewhere and we were talking about his assistants and his associates and people that you know had come in and it just gives him such joy to watch them go off and do great things and he said do you know mark bruni and i said well i don't know him but like i obviously know who he is and he and he just like gushed about you and just had Aww. you know the most wonderful things to say and was so proud so i was always like i need to meet mark someday because that's really um, that's really really nice i met i met walter via encores because Jerry had directed uh, a production of Bye Bye Birdie, which I was supposed to do at the Kennedy Center last year and also got canceled. But uh, this was this was now probably almost well, hold on. Do I have a picture of it? No, Uh, like 20 years ago, maybe. Um, But uh, Walter played Mr. McAfee. And so uh, so I met Walter. Perfect. uh, You know, going through his blocking in his dressing room for the scene at the end of Act One, where he's got to lean into the frame and wave at the camera, and uh, he 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 wanted to get it right. And so uh, we we had we had a lot of uh, moments together going over that uh, going over that particular section of the show, and uh, and then he asked me years later to um, be a part of White Christmas when White Christmas. went from the one production that the the inaugural production that which they did in san francisco they then uh kevin mccollum uh decided to produce it in three cities simultaneously the following year so there was a a team of associates that came on board to um well just expand the expand the troops they needed a phalanx of directors to get that going he told me that story he was like yeah they were doing it they were rehearsing three different full companies and so he said he would go from floor to floor to floor yeah yeah we were know, working at broadway which um which now has become mostly dance studios but at the time was used for a lot of different things but we yeah we were rehearsing on two floors of 890 and they were uh simultaneously and 
you'd go rehearse a scene and then go downstairs and rehearse the same scene with a different set of actors and <laughs> then go back upstairs and rehearse the same scene with a third group of actors. It was sometimes it's hard to keep that straight. And you'd, you'd, you'd go like, wait, why are you doing that? Well, I just told you. Oh, no, no, I didn't tell you. I told the other set of actors that thing. So that, there was a lot of that um, that, that went on. And uh, and and I think the, the the hardest thing about that thing was just making everybody feel like they weren't cogs in the machine because it, it was yes there was a template but also you wanted everybody to feel taken care of you wanted everybody to feel like they had the ability to bring something of their own to it and that the companies had uh, a character that was um, that was their own and that they could uh, not not feel like they were just um, you know putting on an ill fitting coat. Mm-hmm. You've had such a successful career as an associate for so many incredible, incredible directors. And then you've obviously gone on to have your own directing career yourself. But what do you feel like the secret or the key is to being a great associate? Like, why were you able to work with the best of the best and the best and keep jumping from amazing directors and amazing projects? I don't feel like that happens for everyone. And I just wonder, um, and it, it, it was obviously successful for you, because then you built the relationships that that launched your own career as a director, but yeah. but what do you? I, mean, I don't know. Like, what comes to mind? Um, um, I mean, I, I I don't know. I don't I don't really know what the um the, I I don't know that there's like a special sauce or anything. I think that there's a degree of understanding about what your role is in the process, and I think mm-hmm. that understanding that no matter what responsibility you're given, no matter how much you feel like you are being asked to take on the mantle of this production at the end of the day it's not your show mm-hmm. and i think understanding where that line is and understanding what your role is in the in the larger ecosystem of the of the collaborative process on that show i think is really important i think no i think knowing when to be useful when to when you can be useful and when you when is the the appropriate time to to say hey here's an idea and uh, uh, like Jerry Zaks always says, like protect the possibility that I will hear it by getting it to me in a way that is uh, probably on a break privately, not in a way that's ever going to embarrass them. This, the room is such a delicate, a delicate place and, and, and a place that can easily be upset by um, forces that, that can point it in a, a direction. And you don't want to be the person that is um, causing that. I think your job as an assistant or an associate or, or, or any kind of role in which you are supporting the vision of the uh, of the production on the whole or the, of the director ultimately is um, to create circumstances whereby that director can be successful at executing the vision. And then if there's a better idea that you have, which often happens, it's it's about knowing that this is not the time that mm-hmm. that and, and that you know maybe you got to wait it out. And and I think that. Sometimes that takes a good deal of patience because you you have that like, oh, but I, I can just fix this and we can save three hours. And sometimes it's about like, you know, what if you did this and whisper in the ear? And sometimes it's it's about just knowing that you know them well enough to know that they're going to get themselves, they're, they're going to get through it, but you've got to just let it, you got to let it be, it, maybe it'll lead to something even better um, if you let it, if you let it go. Um, mm-hmm. But I, and I think also just uh, th- there's a there's a good deal of organizational capacity. I mean, just the kind of 
the, the non-artistic side of things, dramaturgical support, and there's the, the kind of nuts and bolts of, of physically making the process go smoothly and hopefully, uh, you know, doing things in, a, in an efficient way that, that takes some of the burden off of the director to have to do things that are going to take extra time that they don't need to be spending and they could focus right. more on the big picture. Yeah. Now that totally makes sense. Especially I feel like so much of that holds true for an associate, for an actor, for a designer, for so many people as part of the the collaborative yeah. process. I mean, in some ways, I, can't, I there are times when I really miss the being the associate in the room because you you get to be the person that can kind of lob the ideas from the sideline without being the one that has the pressure of yeah. being in front of everyone and having to come up with it. Um, right. And, and um, I've said this a few times uh, to people, but I, in doing, um, I, I do mostly musicals, but I, I, I do plays from time to time. And, and, and because there are fewer collaborators on plays, I'm so used to having their music time, there's a choreographer that is in the room with you, and there's, there's constantly other people who are in a, in a supervisory role in that way. It, uh, and on a play, you're, you're like six hours in and you're like, still me? Still me. Okay, uh, here we go. I find it to be like much more of an exhausting process, actually. Even though the um, the musicals are uh, have have a, a good deal more kind of problems to solve in terms of um, the, the the various departments and the and the interaction among among all those departments. Right. I would be remiss if I didn't ask and talk about Beautiful because it's um, sure. it was such a huge hit. I mean, I love that musical. I saw it so many times. Oh, thanks. Um, thanks for coming. Yeah, really great, really solid, great work. And um, for me, you made a jukebox musical theatrical with a story and stage worthy with a character that we deeply cared about. I saw it with, you know, different women playing that role and the women were all obviously wonderful. I went to, um, I got my undergrad from Syracuse university. So Jesse Mueller has always been, um, a big, uh, we've always been big Jesse Mueller fans, but she was just so excellent. But those book scenes are just, they're written so well They're you know, the, um, yeah. Yeah. The thing that was so attractive to me about the, I mean, aside from someone saying, Hey, would you like to direct a Broadway show? Yes. Um, (laughs) but, um, musicals are only as good as the book. The book is, uh, is where, where it all starts. And, and Beautiful had uh, a wonderful writer, Doug McGrath, attached from the beginning, and he was very willing to do what it took to to make the changes we needed to get it there. And and it went it, it underwent a good deal of revision over the course of the process, but it was all extremely accelerated because they had already booked the theater. And so um, I came on board in February, and we opened on Broadway the following January. So my involvement with the show was all within a year, which was like completely unheard of. I I don't know that that really uh, often happens, if at all. But in terms of the the actual book itself, Doug writes funny, warm characters. He really admires the uh, movies of Comden and Green, and he his vision for this uh, the way that these this dialogue would work was that 
these characters would function and this this building, this 1650 building would would be the kind of place where these kind of warm-hearted characters would interact with each other. And he's he also has a great uh, and long-term relationship with Woody Allen. He and Woody Allen co-wrote Bullets Over Broadway. And so there's a there's a sense of that uh, that Jewish humor that mm-hmm. um, that also is infused in what he writes. But the process actually of of putting the show together was really a, a lesson in finding out where the spine of it is. And 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 it's 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 not it's not a big secret. It's really one hundred and one. It's it's making the story of your protagonist at the core of it all. And uh, it, it, we started out with a show that was more even handed about the four songwriters, Jerry Goffin and uh, Barry and Cynthia. And, uh, and and Doug had originally written in the early drafts was very much centered around these, these four characters. And Hmm. what we found more and more was that the audience and the dramatic arc of the show needed to be centered around Carol. And so even between San Francisco and New York, we made quite a few changes to the second half of the second act of the show to account for more of the era of when she wrote Tapestry, because that was something that um, the, the show was very much focused. Uh, the whole first act is really focused on her pre-tapestry career and, and the songs that she wrote for other artists. And that's the part that I think is the most surprising to people because they're not really as aware of this this whole amazing career she had as a teenager, um, mm-hmm. writing, all, writing all these songs for other people. But the reason that they're there is really for the other part of her career, the part that they listened to in their dorm room when they all bought Tapestry. That part of the story was not really a part of the show in San Francisco, it was it, it, at, a certain point, at a certain point we sort of pressed fast forward and sort of fast forwarded and didn't really get into her move to California. So, so that was the I think biggest challenge of the show was figuring out how to make that the drama of the second act work in a way that they kept the focus on Carol and kept kept us um, you know finding out how Tapestry came into being and the the, the origin story. Yeah, but uh, the process was. I, w- w- terrifying in some ways because of its because of the speed of it, and certainly the the the, the pressure of having the. You know, it, it's always the same process, no matter when you're, whether you're doing a show in the basement or you're doing a show on Broadway. It's you still you have rehearsal, you have tech, you have uh, previews, but it's just that there are more opinions and there's more pressure. So, um, but the actual doing of it is is the same. And so the part of being in the, in the in the room with the actors and finding the truth of the scenes, that that part I felt like you know we can we can do this. The the part of designing the set for a, for a set, for an act two that we didn't really know what was going to happen in it, that part <laughs> is uh, uh, more terrifying. This is just occurring to me, but when did you know it was going to be a hit? Like when did you know? Was it like? Right in early on, you were like, this is going to work. Or was it, I, I don't know, it just really blew up in a huge way. I, I had seen I had seen an early reading of it when I was not attached to it. Somebody else was attached to it at the time. And I remember just being so taken with the song catalog and the way that the, um, and just the surprise that everybody has that I was just alluding to of, uh, of not really knowing that all of these so- songs have a single source. The kind of surprise factor of that is something that can't be over overestimated. It's really it's really something that people come out feeling that they've learned something as well as been on an emotional journey. And so I remember going to the reading and going, "Oh wow, this is this is an this is an incredible catalog. This is 
very similar to the the emotional attachment that people have to the Jersey Boys songs. This mm-hmm. is going to be something that ha- has the potential to have that kind of emotional attachment, but also it needs to have the emotional attachment to the characters so that you're so that you're caring about this play. And and also the way that the songs are used in the show is is different than other jukebox musicals. I mean, there there are a number of ways that you can do a jukebox musical where you can either use the lyrics of the sh- of the songs to try and uh, tell the story through the lyrics, and that's not what Beautiful does almost ever. There's a there's a few exceptions to the rule where there's uh, at the end of Act One the the, the one fine day reprise is w- was a very hard fought moment actually because the rest of the show is so much about the songs are the songs, and whenever we're singing a song, we're singing a song in the context of let me I'm auditioning this song or I'm performing this song on a television show, but I'm not singing this song as if it's my feelings. And and so we had to we had to kind of find our way into that, but finding finding that balance so that it doesn't it it doesn't go into uh, sort of Mamma Mia territory, which is which is a equally valid way of doing a jukebox musical. But it's it's more like you know there's a there's a slightly more camp factor about oh my god I can't believe they're using this song to tell this story yes. and using and that and that this lyric is working in this double way because it's it's a you know that I know that you know that I know that this wasn't really written for this, but we're using it yeah. this way and isn't that fun. Um, but we don't really do that at all in Beautiful. There, there was always on the part of Doug, especially, and, and, the, and the songwriters, quite frankly, a, a, a respect for the songs and, and there was never, and I would never do this either, but have a feeling of, of disrespecting the songs by using them in a way that would be diminishing them or, or uh, making fun of them in any way by trying to make them do something that they weren't really designed to do. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that way you're able to let the songs be the songs and stand on their yeah. own because they're so fantastic and the lyrics are yeah. so, so great. And then you can let these great meaty book scenes be yeah. these great meaty book scenes that pull the story forward. So yeah, it's, it's, and, and I'm a great believer in trusting the material when you have great material and you have great actors presenting that material, then it's it's a great gift as a director because you can trust it and you can just go for making making the most honest choice that you can in order to make it feel like the first time, and mm-hmm. that's kind of what we went for with uh, with beautiful and got the A team to be able to execute it. Yeah, well, I so so enjoyed it and so happy that you all did such a wonderful job. But it just um, oh, thanks. It's always it's always stood out to me as something that really worked and something that so many other producers and directors are trying to make work with other similar projects. And I just always go back to, I always say, I'm thinking of something specific right now, but I'm not going to say it. (laughs) After I click record, I'll be like, this was trying to be beautiful, but it just, um, it just didn't. It really, it really starts and starts and ends at the book. If the book isn't there, no amount of transitions and honest acting is going to get you past it. I mean, it, it ha- it, there, there, there has to be a dramatic arc that makes you care on the page because mm-hmm. otherwise it's not going to be up there. And it, it is very much in the words of the text of Beautiful. And um, we, I've seen it over and over with so many different actresses who have played Carol over the course of our incredible you know, run in New, York, in New York and also in London and Australia and around the world. There's a core humanity and a and the the self-deprecating quality that she has is so appealing to an audience and i've just seen it happen the way the way that that opening speech is written for her which is which is based on a real concert she really did this concert in at carnegie hall and if you listen to 
the recording of that concert, there's a there's a great moment where she, uh, I guess she has a glass of something on the piano and she, she she takes off and she says, it's apple juice. I know that may be hard to believe. And like in that nutshell, and just that kind of innocence about the fact that she would think that the audience would think that she was drinking and that she felt the need to apologize <laughs> for it. And it, that is, 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 is Carol in a nutshell. It's just that, that moment. And, and there's a, and there's a, uh, you know, a similar self-deprecating moment that is in that opening speech that, that instantly tells you so much about who Carol is as a character and endears you to her right away. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's a great part. And I'm so happy, you know, it's like creating those phenomenal roles for women. And like that, that role totally is up there, you know, on the list of in the catalog. Yeah, it's been, it's, it's been, a, it's been a great gift to be able to uh, work on that material and, uh, and see so many incredible, incredible actresses just yeah. dig their teeth into it and nail it. Yeah. Speaking of the incredible actresses, I, I want to just, I want to touch on the audition room. It's um, sure. something that's important that I love to talk about on the podcast. And I, I just feel like it's kind of like a perfect little uh, segue talking about these amazing women and maybe how and where you find them. We don't have to talk about Carol specifically or beautiful, but I just wonder about, about the audition room. You know, if you, you know, gave 10 directors the same musical and had them all sit behind a table and, you know, had a bunch of the same actors come in, the show would probably be cast 10 different ways, you know, like mm-hmm. it's subjective. Everyone has their own taste and, and is looking for something differently and to, to kind of like uh, complete that cast and make, you know, make the room, uh, the rehearsal room, a positive place. But I just, I just wonder what it's not, there's no easy way to ask this, but like, what are you looking for? Like what makes you excited when an actor comes in or, you know, let's think about like a first audition or something. If someone's just coming in, maybe you don't know them or what goes through your head. What makes you, what makes you get excited? I guess. Well, I I will answer that in two parts. The first part I want to mention is just that very often the people that are coming in to see me have been pre-screened by a casting director and i think casting directors are the unsung heroes of the industry and i have been very very well uh supported by the various casting directors who have worked with me stephen copel uh cast all of beautiful uh jay binder casts all the things that encores um I, i've worked with a number of other wonderful mary sugarman jeff jostleson tara rubin D- don't mean to name drop i just want to acknowledge that these are uh, wonderful and taste full of um ideas and taste and i i I very much thrive on having having someone who has strong ideas about the the show to um to be able be able to have a a dialogue with about about the casting of it so i the, the casting director is a critical piece of this puzzle but in terms of what happens in the room i i like people that make me believe that what they're doing is the first time that hmm. this that I, I just whatever the scene is that that there is an engagement that goes with listening as much as talking that there is a is a sense that they are experiencing what this character is experiencing and they just make me believe them and that seems like it's overly simplistic but it's actually surprisingly rare i think a lot of people spend a good deal of time in the mirror or at home deciding here's all my choices i'm going to make that i'm going to show what smart choices i made and to a certain extent yes there's those moments where 
there's a, a surprising turn of phrase or a, a surprising way of turning a line that makes me go, oh, huh, I didn't, I hadn't thought of it that way. That's really smart. And also it makes sense for this character in this moment. What I often find is that that feels a little bit like I'm seeing a sequence of actor choices rather than I am, I am cutting to the heart of what this is actually about. I, I remember I was I was in a play in college with uh, with a British actor who had come over, who was a friend of my professor's, um, who had come over to be in the show, and it's this wonderful British actor named Sam West, and he um, said, "So few actors have the courage to be ordinary," and I thought that was really interesting. And it's it's about knowing what your job is is to be specific and clear and write down the nose of like this is what it is and sometimes i just i appreciate people who know what what it is that they're auditioning for and what they need to do to deliver that part of it and oftentimes with like small parts where there's uh there, there's like a three-line part of course the, the impulse is to try and make absolutely the most out of all three of those lines and many directors may have completely different takes on this um and i actually sometimes really appreciate when someone just comes in and knows these are the three lines, it's three lines. The, how much can you do with three lines? I'm right. just going to do what I do and make it real. And, uh, and, and if you like it, great. If you don't like it, you know, it, it, and, and knowing that the place of that in the larger tapestry, if you will, of the, um, uh, did not mean to make that pun. Um, I loved it. <laughs> of, the, of the play is going to be something that's totally out of your control. You don't, re- you know, you you do, you can only be what you can be. You can only do what you can do. And that that little three line thing that you're doing probably just needs to function in a way that is contrasting the other person that's cast opposite that. Or you know, if there's a if you're if you're trying to create some sort of visual idea or that there, you know, so I, I think. Um, you know, trusting choices, but also being able to be in the room and be, uh, I mean, you, I, you mentioned that you've, you've done a lot of being the reader and I, I'm sure that you've seen over and over somebody who is reading with you, but isn't really reading with you. Um, right. They're waiting for you to deliver the line back, but they've already decided how they're going to say the next line. And it's completely irrelevant what you're giving them. And that is something that I find to be sometimes a little bit off-putting. I, on the other side of things, as an actor, I'm sure it's, it's so frustrating when you go into the room and there's a reader who isn't the greatest. Like, and, and I think that it's the responsibility of the casting director to make sure that the person that's in the room is representing the text in a way that is... And, and oftentimes, on the rare occasion that the reader is, is not understanding an inflection or or something that is that uh, that might give the actors uh, a better sense of what the scene is about. Um, I, I will go over and maybe give a note to them or something, or just say, "Hey, you know, it might be better if you just did it this way, so that so that they can feel like mm-hmm. they have have something to to." Um, uh, but but I you know I love watching people pass the ball to each other. It's, it's the tennis match of. Uh, of being interested enough and watching someone and going, yeah, I would like to spend the whole, in the case of a larger part, it's about, do I want to spend the whole evening with this person? And are they consistently interesting? And by interesting, I don't mean making a, a sequence of oddball choices. I mean, am I engaged emotionally in their moment to moment? And do I lean in when they are doing the scene? 
and I find that even five years into Beautiful, going into it, doing a Carol audition, you can just there. It's very it's very clear when the, there's there's somebody who is really have there's really something going on behind the eyes, and that those the 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 turns and the choices and the are not a series of choices, but they are just they're just lived in. They just feel. They just feel, and it's not necessarily that those are the ones that are going to be on there on opening night. And that's not, you know, it's not about necessarily coming in with an opening night performance, but it's about coming in with something that feels completely honest. And also, and and, and the other side of it is, is also the, the, the creating a family of the company. And, and, and you know, I probably goes without saying that you want a, a group of actors who are all a similar kind of actor and a similar supportive, warm presence that is going to allow the process of rehearsal to be a positive one and to um, allow for the creativity of everyone else to be supported and to leave space and not suck the air because we've uh, all been in the room with that person who completely just sucks the air out of the room and it only takes one. And so you, you have to be very careful in the casting about making sure that you are not casting that person because it yeah. will just make the process hellacious. Yeah, I think we've all been there when that happens. I, I just, I love what you said. You're the first director on the podcast to, to mention the casting director um, and, and just like how important that is because I know as an actor, I've been in, you know, plenty of those pre-screens where those, you know- Hugely those- important because- I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no, go um, ahead. you know, casting is such an imperfect process. Auditioning is such an imperfect process. You're seeing a very, very small window into what any of these actors are capable of, especially if you don't know their work otherwise, or if you haven't seen them in a show, or you haven't seen them really do things outside of the room. And also the idea of doing something in a room in front of you, in front of a table with fluorescent lighting is a completely different thing than what they're going to be asked to be doing on a stage, um, you know, with a thousand people in the audience. So it's the, the, the conditions are, are, are kind of crazily different. And also you are getting a very, very small sample. So the casting director is sort of the person who's saying, I am aware of the larger career that is behind this audition. And I have more information that I can add to this and I can, vouch for, you know, because sometimes you get a feeling about somebody and whether it's a feeling about, you know, hey, is this, is this somebody that, uh, you know, people like to work with, but also it's like, is this the, have you seen this, this actor do this kind of work? Or is there something that, you know, is oftentimes when it comes to comedy, that's something that's difficult to, to judge, you know, you go, have you seen this person, you know, take, comedy and and I'm very much not about like can this person do the ministry of funny walks I that is that that I don't I, I don't want I don't need any of that because that actually is a harder thing because then you end up being in in in, in disagreement as uh, as a director because they, there's all these choices of people thinking they're funny and and then in unless there's a huge trust and you go like I need I need you to believe I need you to trust that I will make sure that you are funny, but I don't need you to take the, take the responsibility of making a series of funny choices because more often than not, the material is funny. You are not funny. And 
that's that's some that's certainly a Jerry Zaxism um, and something that I learned from him. But I, I believe that it's very true in that when it comes to comedy, the best comedy comes out of desperation, truth, somebody pursuing something and and, and there being an, an obstacle in the way and then just pushing so hard against it that it's funny. Also, talking about comedy is the least funny thing. So uh, <laughs> you just made me laugh, about, though, <laughs> talking about the talking about the mechanics of comedy. That's not funny. So, uh, yeah, but you, you, you got it. Um, yeah. Anyway, blah, 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 blah. No, totally. Totally. You're, you're absolutely right. Like the casting director, there's, there's what's happening in the room. And then the casting director is like that wealth of knowledge of what have I seen them do has the, has the lowdown on, you know, their prior career and their, and their performance and everything. I just want to wrap up by asking, you know, one last thing that I've I've been asking people lately and it's just been so wonderful to hear, but I just wonder, you know, if you could go back to, you know, you're 22, 23, you're you just got out of school, you were working um with Jerry. What would what do you wish you could say to yourself, I guess, about um less about the craft and the artistry of it, but more about how the business functions and how the business works and you know, we all kind of learn our lessons the hard way or the easy way. And, and, you know, there's something to be said for, you can't be, you know, you can't be told something, you kind of have to learn it on your own. But I just wonder, like, what would you say to yourself about the business that maybe you, you wish you had known that you, that you've learned kind of along the way? Yeah, that's a really, good, that's a really interesting question. I feel that in some ways, I, I, we're, we're all going to be asked that question on the other side of this pandemic. And looking back at, what do you what do you wish you'd known at the beginning of the big shutdown that um, because there's going to be something we're we're at a we're at a period of such uncertainty at this moment yeah. um, that it, it 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 almost it feels so strange to be feeling like you're in a position to be able to look back and 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 say well I I've I've learned this great thing because it's it the 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 present feels so uncertain and the present feels like and and. You know the end. The end point is um, we're 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 undergoing such a such a fundamental change in the way that the uh, the way that it all works. But I would say, stick with it. If something really means that much to you, things will work out one way or the other. But that you only have one life to live, and that you have to pursue that thing that you. If you could, I remember getting the getting the piece of advice that if you could do anything else, do it because it's going to be too hard if you don't love it. And and I feel that that's that's a continued piece of advice that I would give now. I I would say it's a business that has a lot of there are a lot of people that want to do it, and so I would say that the thing that will get you through is your own personal passion for it and your need to be a storyteller in the case of a director or to, um, you know, be in those rehearsal rooms or what, you know, the, and, and, and get, get the joy out of those moments because th that's what it's all about. Now, not having those moments, it makes them all the more precious. And we think back on those moments where you, you, those, those like 10 out of 12 rehearsals at the time, I, I remember being, feeling overwhelmed, feeling like these, this is an extremely long day. And I would kill to go to a 10 to 12, 10 out of 12 rehearsal. I mean, this is at this at this moment the idea of uh, of getting to spend that much time on uh, on the craft at this moment would be um, would be such a such a wonderful uh, a wonderful change from watching the Bake Off. Totally, totally, and you know, this is just one last thing that it kind of goes along with what you're what you just said. But 
I just want to personally, you know, for you, because we started this conversation, you know, you talked about that your original, you know, idea was to go to law school. I wonder, you know, and you talked about, you know, if you can do anything else, at what point, was there a specific point or day or memory that you have where you were like, I'm no. not going to law school or, or um, was it? You know, I, there, I, there was a long time that I was, that I said to myself, I'm going to get on this train. And I'm going to take the train to the end of the line. And when people tell me I need to get off the train, I'll get off the train. And and it was it was certainly you know not something that was the, the the theater side of things was not something that was paying the bills by any means for for a long time. And I think a lot of the reason that I continued to do the assisting and associating longer than I probably should have is because that was a was an, a way to be able to continue to to be in the theater and be in a way in a way that actually paid. A, a reasonable enough wage to pay the rent in New York City. Um, that's and and do theater. I mean, there as a, as an associate on a Broadway show, you can make you know enough money that you. Um, I mean, it's not by any means you know you're not uh, making a huge amount of money, but but it's but it's a lot more than you would be making even getting us getting a fee to direct something in a regional theater or something like mm -hmm. that. You know, that's so. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that there was a specific moment, but things that one opportunity led to another. And I remember there was a moment where I actually did apply to law school. This was maybe five years in I, because things weren't really I was still working with Jerry, but it, it was not like there was a Broadway show on the horizon and fall was a big empty space, not unlike this fall. And I thought, well, OK, maybe this is time. So I took the LSAT and I applied to law school. And then right after I got the results or I, I somehow I got another job and then it just felt like, okay, getting back on the train. And, uh, and then, uh, the train just kept going. So, and then, and then I think also the, the second piece of that was that I, I discovered what entertainment lawyers actually do and went, well, that isn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. And also I thought, well, I, I was, I was kind of more excited about the idea of going to law school than the idea, than the reality of being a lawyer. And so I think that when I once I realized that law school was really a trade school for becoming a lawyer rather than a continued educational utopia of uh, getting to continue to, um, you know, at a certain point, you know, you're you're good at going to school for a while. And right. when you're when you get when you get out of college, you're like, OK, I got this. I know how to go to school. And like the idea of going to more school feels very like an idea that is totally logical because that's just more of something that you know how to do. And so then when you go and work on something else and find that you're good at that, then suddenly going back to this, back to school feels a little daunting actually, because it's something that you haven't really done in a while. And so that, that, that I think that kind of came into it, but also the idea of just not really wanting to be a lawyer in that sense, not no offense to lawyers. They're wonderful and important. And I'm always amazed that John Weidman is, uh, it, it went from, uh, from an incredible law career to, uh, to being one of the greatest book writers of uh, musical theater. Um, yeah. and, and that was like, that was actually largely what w was in my head because I thought, well, John Weidman, I'd done this production of Assassins. I thought John, John's book was so brilliant. I thought, you know, if he, if John can do it, that feels like maybe, maybe there's something uh, to putting those two things together. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great answer. That's a great answer. Um, Mark, thank you so much. I'm so sorry we went a little bit longer, but this was no worries, no worries. so wonderful. We hit so much and I know people are going to just really get a lot out of it. Thank you so much. This was um, great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for asking me. It's just a pleasure.
For more information on the podcast and our guests, visit thebreakdownpodcast.com and connect with us. Let us know you're listening on Facebook and Instagram at The Breakdown with Robbie. And again, if you like what you heard, help spread the word and make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for another episode of The Breakdown. Ah!